This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. This is podcast episode 225, and we are incredibly excited to be coming to you from the barrel cellar in Belgium of Drie a fantastic Lambic and Goose brewery here in Belgium on the outskirts of Brussels, uh, right near the Seine River. Joining me on the podcast uh, co-hosting is Joe Stang, our managing editor. And Werner and Lucas have uh, joined us from the brewery. We're going to talk about their approach to Lambic Brewing. Well, welcome, of course. Thank you, guys. Hi. Thanks. Yeah. We are going to talk about their approach to Lambic Brewing. We're going to talk to us particularly about their approach to ingredients. Um, you know, we There is that romantic blended element of spontaneous fermentation. We've talked about that quite a bit on the podcast with all sorts of brewers over many, many years. Uh the brewery here has a particular approach to cereal and grain, and we are going to uh, talk about how they are closing the gap in agriculture, trying to create a more holistic approach and a more integrated approach uh, across all of those things, which is such an interesting thing for somebody because the focus of Lambic is so uh, built around the romantic notion of spontaneous fermentation. The ingredient side of that beer is often not uh, Paid as much attention to. We are going to talk all about that. Of course, uh, in the past, in 2018, uh, Armand Gaston, Cuvée Armand Gaston, which we're drinking right now, was one of our uh, beers of the year. And uh, we are also going to taste a few of their other projects in the works because they're doing fantastic work and everything from sherry barrels and using, uh, um, uh, you know, creating lambic and aging lambic in a variety of ways to, to create compelling blends um, that explore all sorts of flavors as well as natural winemaking processes. We're going to do all of that, but first, for nearly 30 years, g d Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment. You can rely on G&D stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. G&D also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in-house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real-world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System Design experts today at gdchillers.com. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at BSG. We all know that the best brewing results come from the best ingredients BSG offers the largest variety of quality ingredients to create outstanding beers. BSG brings the best malt, hops, and additives from around the world to your brew house. Their knowledgeable and dedicated staff comes from the brewing industry and can assist you in product consultation for your recipe formulation. Contact your dedicated sales or customer service rep or become a customer at bsgcraft.com slash customer. Werner, why don't we kick off the podcast with, uh, if you can give us a bit of history about both the brewery uh, and then also about, uh, you know, your particular journey uh, in beer that has brought you here. Okay. Um, Yeah, Brauerie Drie Fontaine actually started as a a cafe uh, in the village center of uh, Beersel, which is a stone throw away from uh, from Lot, actually, Um, the end of the 1800s. it has uh, gone through uh, five different uh, generations. Meanwhile, 
Um, and uh, the last, uh, let's say, 20 years, um, Armand has actually built uh, Drie Fontaine from a one-man blendery to uh, actually a, a team of 20 today. We, are, uh, uh, we have evolved from uh, purely blending to uh, brewing and blending. So about 75% of the lambic that you uh, see around us uh, is actually uh, blend, uh, brewed by Drie Fontaine. And the 25 per, uh, other percent we still buy wort from uh, befriended uh, breweries and we elevate it to lambic in our uh, own barrels. Um, the uh, uh, the last uh, you elevate you uh, take the wort and you elevate we it. elevate it. It's uh, taken from the French uh, word élevage, coming from wine, uh, as yeah the process of uh, lambic uh, brewing and and uh, the whole uh, uh, fermentation, maturation, and aging in a bottle is actually closer to winemaker uh, winemaking than actually other types of beer making. Um, and it's, it, it bears a, a very histo historical uh, approach to, to beer brewing. Um, and that makes, I think, uh, Lambic still very special in, uh, in today's uh, uh, beer world. Um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, the last couple of years we have been, uh, um, or that, that at least was the, the very first step in uh, uh, the modern history of uh, Drie Fontaine. So just to give you uh, uh, an overview of what happened the last couple of years in 2013, um, Drie Fontaine was spread out on four different locations. So we had the brewery in Beersel itself. We had a small barrel room under the brewery. We had a barrel room uh, two uh, streets from the brewery and then two other barrel rooms uh, also with bottling equipment and, and, um, and labeling equipment uh, in Halle, uh, which is, uh, let's say, a 15-minute drive um, on normal hours but of course brewers they don't work on normal hours they work in the morning they work in the evening and that's actually uh, uh, the uh, the rush hour uh, around brussels so uh, a 15 a normal 15 minute drive actually took about 45 minutes on average um, at that time uh, working uh, they were working four people at trifontaine um, about one full-time uh, employee was uh, actually doing the logistics between the different locations. So at that time, um, Armand and Michael, uh, Michael already joined Trifontaine uh, at that time. Um, uh, we were thinking about uh, getting everything together to work more efficiently, to have more options in terms of operations and so on. Um, the, and, and that's actually how I rolled in uh, 10 years before Um, I made my thesis on uh, traditional lambic beers. And uh, of all brewers, Armand was uh, actually the only one that was very open, very outspoken on uh, what he did, uh, also on the financial data, because uh, yeah, my, my thesis was, uh, was financially inspired and went about uh, how passion and financial ratio were not always uh, aligned to each other. Um, ever since, and... Um, that's that's what Armand has always been to me, like a, a kind of a very uh, uh, a kind of a mentor. Um, and at the age of 22, 22 doing that thesis, um, having his uh, question, or he asked me, like, "Look, once it's finished, I also want to know from you what I'm doing well, what I'm doing wrong. I would you, I would like you to give me some perspective." So after the thesis. Yeah, Drie Fontaine has always been the brewery uh, that inspired me to think about values, to think about uh, quality. 
And yeah, every month I went to the Rifontaine to fetch my case of Geuses to put away my cellar. And then in the summer of 2013, I came into the shop in Beersel and suddenly Armand sees me and very abundantly he invites me uh, to the back where there was a table, like these two tables that we're sitting at, full of plans about a possible location to actually go to. Um, I knew Armand for years. I already knew Michael from uh, the brewing course. Michael not having a brewery background. Uh, a lot of people don't have a brewery background working at Rifontaine, which is a, which is actually a trait rather than... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's actually a trait. Um, uh, it's a feature, it's not a flaw. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the only thing I could, could ask Armand is like, do you already have a plan? like a financial plan or a business plan. Uh, Armand didn't want to hear about it at that point, and it was out of sheer interest that I asked the question. Um, but I proposed, like, look, Armand, once it's getting more uh, real and, and concrete, just call me because this is such a beautiful project. Uh, I really would like to continue to drink Trifontaine, to sell <laughs> sure, it, so sure. that, that my children and maybe even my grandchildren can still drink Trifontaine because Trifontaine was still in 2013 in kind of a bad shape after the right. uh, thermostat incident in 2009. Um, and suddenly in October 2013, so a few months later, he calls me and says, Werner, I think we should talk because uh, things are getting real. Um, and that's how I entered in Trifontaine. First, I, I worked for a year and a half, like working on the plan. Um, the initial location was not the final location. We looked for more than a year, two different uh, possible options uh, before choosing this one here. And in the meanwhile, I, I helped out a bit on uh, yeah, just bookkeeping, uh, all the overhead stuff, so that Armand and Michel could really focus on the... Uh, uh, on the creative and uh, the artistic side, so to say. And yeah, when you end up choosing a location, when you speak to the banks, then the question pops up and Armand asked it. And that's the beauty about, about Armand as, be, as being our pater uh, familias, our guide, our inspiration. As from the first meeting, he always asked, Werner, what's your ambition? And... And, and those are the moments that I'm uh, getting quiet. It's maybe he already had a plan in his head about the future that he foresee for the Rifontaine. And um, yeah, that's, that's how I actually tumbled into the Rifontaine. Uh, and I'm very grateful ever since that uh, I got that opportunity. For someone who comes from a business background and with that, you know, in, in schooling and university, um, you also have a very firmly held philosophy about creating a holistic approach to this that is very much in line with the vision uh, of the creative side of the business and very much about supporting that creative vision and creating that entire sustainable economy around creating this artisanal product. I can't wait to talk a little bit more about that, but first supply chain challenges are here to stay for a while. So why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard is partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more of concentrate from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes from various carriers and can stay up to date on the status of your shipment. 
To get started on a freight quote for craft concentrates today, head over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation is the first real-time comprehensive fermentation monitoring solution. It works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real-time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Brew Monitor provides detailed insight into your fermentations that helps improve beer consistency, reduce tank time, increase overall efficiency, saving your brewery time and money. Get started for 30 days risk-free Visit precisionfermentation.com slash brewing. Let's talk about that then. Um, coming at this, you know, because Lambic and Goose is so tied to historical tradition, but also, again, romantic notions of brewing in a beautiful way and in a connected way, um, you have come into this in order to enable that and also built to build a firm business uh, foundation for that, to allow it to happen on that kind of, of creative level. Talk to me about some of the ways that you and, uh, uh, Fontanen are making those kinds of, you know, connected approaches to, to building this holistic approach in brewing. Um, it's, it's, um, an interesting question. It's, um, uh, not a short answer. Um, and maybe going back to the, those first days of thinking uh, ahead and thinking about the future, there's al- always one thing. There's a, a very big layer of gut feeling. And the gut feeling is, is just the energy you get from people sitting around the table. And in the beginning, that was Michael, Armand, and myself. And Mikel is the next generation blender, yeah. yep. Armand. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, in 2010, Armand was looking for uh, some extra hands in the brewery, uh, in the blending uh, operations. Um, and Michael um, just walked up and um, immediately they were thinking, this this is him. Um, <laughs> sure. And yeah. this, this kind of generational thing is something that even American craft brewers are now facing. That, mm. you know, American craft brewers that started in the 80s and 90s you have a generation of brewers who are at retirement age and how do you continue? You know, you either need to find someone to pass it on to. And, and the same thing has happened here. If you don't have a next generation within your own family, that's interested in taking over that business, but it's a business that is driven by passion that you have to have a passion for, then you need to find someone to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Michael was trained as a, as being an accountant, but those traits uh, being very structured are also very helpful in brewing because you have to, to follow some uh, different steps and you have to keep your head on, on the whole process. Um, Armand not having a, a children of his own, uh, was looking for, uh, the next generation and, and, and for some follow-up. Um, that's why he referred a lot to Michael and myself as being the sons he never had. Um, and um, that also indicates how uh, Armand was so open to allow other people into his business um, from the notion that, yeah, he wanted uh, want Trifontaine to survive beyond himself. Um, and then you sit around the table and you start to draft the future. Um, and I will give you one anecdote to, uh, to answer to that question. Um, the most difficult part of planning the future for uh, for a lambic brewery or a blendery, um, it's the complexity of having a balance within the barrel room. You need to have one year, two year, three year, and in the case of Drie Fontaine, we have barrels of three, four, uh, and fi- uh, four, five, and six years. 
you need to plan that ahead if you want to buy new barrels and you have to um, uh, also start to to model the financial side of it to go to a bank for a loan and so on um, that was up to Michael and myself to do so right you are spending a lot of money to make beer that you won't sell for several years you also then need to predict demand several years out so that you are making the right amount of beer three years from now. Absolutely. And then, of course, you don't can't plan for something like a global pandemic that happens in the midst of all of that. Absolutely. So there's a, a, a we don't have a linear process. So we brew something just to put it away for a very long time. Um, so uh, we brew and we blend with a with a very with a huge delay. Um, and, and to come back to while making plans, one of the nicest moments that happened while sitting at the same exact tables that we're sitting at, um, at a Sunday morning, because we did it in our free time when Michael was not brewing, so planning for the future was done in our free time. Uh, at a certain mo- point, Armand comes in. We didn't know about it. He was, uh, he was using an excuse, I have to fetch something, which was very short, but he came out, he, he went out, he looked back to us and he says, uh, I'm really uh, loving what I'm seeing. And he was gone. And that actually took us like five minutes to start to grasp what was happening. And still today, thinking about that moment, we are uh, still very quiet about it because it's a, it was a very beautiful moment. And that's where we we actually uh, um, 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 realized that what we were doing was actually the continuation of the values of Armand. And that's what I mean by the gut feeling. Um, we plan ahead. Um, we, we, we joined, uh, different, uh, uh, experiences and expertise, and then we decide and we go, um, and yeah, by between 2000 and between 2013 and 2019, we have been planning towards 2019. So over six years, because it took six years to come, uh, to that balance again. Um, that was aligned with the surface or the potential of the surface that we have here with this building. So we uh, pre-invested uh, quite some effort in terms of uh, uh, human capital. So we, we hired a brew, an extra brewer, we hired people for the barrel room before actually selling the very first bottle. And then COVID hits. That's uh, very, uh, uh, that was the, 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 most wrong timing because we actually (laughs) got to the new kind of balance end of 2019 a few months prior to to covid you've built this new more much more expensive facility you've filled it up with barrels and beer more fooders everything else in order to increase production and and hopefully Mm -hmm. make enough beer for to meet more of the demand around for it worldwide and then and then covid hits yeah so the uh, initial plan was has always been to uh go to 8,000 hectoliters of barrel capacity mm-hmm. uh, to actually produce around to t- uh, 3,500 hectoliters in bottles. So which is uh, more or less a, a rotation cycle of two and a half years. So between the brew and the ex- actual usage of the alembic for uh, fruit maceration or to blend it to a goose, uh, every drop uh, uh, in a weighted average approach is two and a half years before we use it in the barrel room. That's uh, except for uh, that's uh, not including uh, the bottle uh, conditioning. Um, so it's a very long process, and it's actually um, uh, the continuation of the process that Armand has always uh, uh, respected. 
um, as Armand always said, uh, with this new uh, environment um, about Gaston, uh, Gaston can come in and he can just continue because we're actually doing the same thing only on another scale. Uh, and that's what I mean. Growing a business is one thing, but it's also important to keep in mind the values with which you do it. And that has uh, unchanged with, uh, with Tri Fontana. With this this craft malt idea that has been growing in, in the world of craft beer, um, that's something that you all have embraced deeply here. I, th I think it goes back to, as we were talking before we started the podcast, that uh, one of Armand's ideas was brewing from the back garden. Um, at, and you've engaged in something, you know, when we all think about it from an American perspective, when we think about Lambic brewing, we think about the romantic idea of fruit and the spontaneous fermentation, but grain in particular is something that you all have focused deeply on. Talk to me about the, the program that you all have engaged in to, to, uh, uh, more closely connect your Lambic beer with the grain that it's made from. Um, so uh, that, that takes us back to 2017, uh, also a nice uh, summer day outside that we were thinking about the very long term for Drie Fontaine. And um, while we were um, uh, uh, buying new barrels and, uh, and, and already uh, trying some more fruit, uh, fruits, sorry, um, the next question popped up like, what about the cereals? And that's where uh, Armand put his fist on the table. He says, we have to go back to our own back garden. Um, and yeah, between an idea and the actual realization of such an idea. Uh, <laughs> Armand, Armand has the idea and then it's up to you all to execute on this. I see. That has been the uh, natural bal balance between the three of us. That's true. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, luckily... Um, we are close to the Pajotaland. Um, it only takes a, a few a few phone calls to to get in touch with uh, with some farmers, and uh, very quickly uh, we came in touch with a uh, Tess, uh, like we say locally, Tess Bulens, who was actually already uh, multiplying uh, very uh, old varieties of of wheat land races, um, and he actually pointed us pointed us to uh, Lucas. Uh, who at that time was doing his thesis around uh, agroecology, uh, but he can explain that way better than uh, than I can. <laughs> um, and um, from then on, everything uh, happened very, uh, pun intended, spontaneously. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, when sitting together with farmers, you you not only do not only uh, share the same passion, but you f you also feel them. You feel their challenges. You feel their uh, values. And um, the beauty of it all is that we actually are. Um, everyone says it's quite innov innovative. Um, it's not. It's actually doing again what was once the standard, and that's the expression of of uh, terroir and. Um, when talking about Lambic, of course, you're talking about the air, the, the Seine River, but we're forgetting about the soil, which is also very uh, fruitful and very rich in these regions. And that's, uh, it was just pure or sheer uh, logic that we would do it, uh, because it's also an expression of the steadfast direction that Trifontaine is going, not only for the beer, but it's an extension of what we're doing with the beer. So, Lucas. Let's talk about that. I, I sense a theme here where thesis, university thesis, turns into brewery project. Um, talk to me about yours and how that has then expressed and become something from a theoretical idea to a program and practice here. Yeah. So 
actually indeed it was it was the farmer this um who was very enthusiastic and already searching for these old land traces um multiplying them and he knew about the 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 kleine rosse van brabant the old land race which was grown here in Pajotland and used by the alderland big brewers in former times um and so they met somehow <laughs> actually some something on top of that he is um working on a couple of the fields from Armand's family um so he's grown now actually vegetables he's a, a small scale vegetable farmer um and so he knew Arma and so they discussed together and this was like Arma haven't you got any old bag of weeds somewhere hidden somewhere lost in in, in the brewery there might be something we we could try to grow and and see if if, if this is still alive but he he didn't and so indeed like Werner said the whole reflection of we don't know the farmers anymore we're very proud of of our beer of our approach but we have no clue where where the, the cereals come from um and so that's why they asked this could you help us to find farmers from the region uh which 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 could grow the the, the cereals together for us and so there's was like okay this is a really interesting project we could create kind of a cereal collective of farmers um but Des wanted to remain farmer himself and he didn't want to become kind of a coordinator of a network and that's why how somehow he, he found me and he asked me could you are you interested in, in working on this type of project and i was like yeah for sure this is this is great but i'm still studying <laughs> I, i don't have so much time yet um and so i had to finish studies first and then i had to write a thesis for the studies and then i was like why don't we think of, of can we write thesis about this and so we 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 talked to Trifontaine and we talked to Tess we talked to the professors and everybody was quite enthusiastic and so that that was actually actually the starting point um of really thinking how can we organize this whole thing how can you organize this network of farmers so that it benefits to all partners and so it's not only for Trifontaine an interesting project because we have the local grains again and it's a nice story but how should we organize ourselves so that for the farmers it's it's really a benefit too and this is really uh, a big issue it's it's not evident and so the whole thing one of the big concepts in, in this thesis was the was the lock-ins which are the lock-ins in this whole system why isn't it happening anymore we are very proud of our belgian beer but there's not much belgian in belgian beer <laughs> apart sure, from sure. apart from what the water right there's less than 3% of all the grains needed by the belgian brewers which comes from belgium which is grown in belgium and so we we totally lost this connection actually between the processors the beer makers and and the farmers and so that's why we were like okay how do we set this up which quality criteria do we need which prices do we need which risk sharing do we need because some years it's just the weather is bad and and the, the harvest is not good and so we can't use it how do we store between production between the field the harvest and brewing because brewing is in the winter harvesting is in the summer what happens to the grain in between and so many many questions popped up and we really had to deal with it and and but the approach was so nice because it was it was a really participatory approach between the brewers the farmers and the researchers somehow um yeah to think all together to we met a couple of times we invited all the farmers here to discuss about how will we organize ourselves we invited the brewers um 
to to see to visit the fields of the farmers and so the farmers telling about how are they growing these grains uh, what issues do they meet um, how does it work and so this 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 trust creation between the farmers and, and and brewers this the respect also to to understand the 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 work of the other uh, is so important so this is a multi-dimensional thing yeah. first you need to decide you know you look back at a potential library of heritage grains land race wheat varieties um you know uh, barley varieties also mm-hmm. yeah um and then you need to did you do agricultural test projects to see what grew and what kind I mean, because all of these you need you're, you're trying to triangulate between flavor and expression something that's useful for you as a brewer yeah. but also agronomic uh, sustainability something that can grow efficiently and healthy in a resilient kind of way for the farmers so that they can make enough of it and you can find some way to price it and so how did talk to me about how you worked through that piece of it to find both flavorful but also agronomically uh, you know possible uh, varieties to grow yeah that's that's indeed that's exactly the the innovative side of of the work we're doing because we do in in in, in research in research and in in, in um, making new varieties of wheat or barley or anything um it's really it's it, it's got totally out of the hands of the farmers it's the researchers it's the it's the the, the monsantos of, of right of the larger corporate yeah, entities are making, that are selling you the seeds exactly. right they, they are making you what it is and they have all the knowledge of how to right. make a new variety and the farmers they did before because they were just selecting in the field they were seeing they 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 did have populations in their field so things which were more diverse and sometimes they would be like oh this one is so beautiful is so resistant to diseases i'll pick it and i'll multiply it and i'll I'll see if i can grow something new and so it it was something the farmers were very familiar with but today it's it's totally lost and so there's a new approach of participatory plant breeding which we call and so this is the way of seeing involving the farmers again in this type of work but normally it's because it's between breeders researchers and farmers and here we add the brewers right in this group because we try as you said we try to find the right varieties which are adapted to the farmers to their condition the terroir the field the soil but also their farming techniques their practices and also in the second time to the brewery what do we need and actually, we have to redefine the criteria because industry sets criteria. They say, okay, a brewing barley needs to be this and this and this and this. But for us, being an, an, an artisanal brewery, a craft brewery, we, n- we don't need the same criteria. But nobody else is, is saying, okay, this is the set of criteria for the craft breweries. But, but you must know what criteria you need here. For, for Drifontainen, there must be specifications and then our our uh, or, or or do you improvise? You can you can work with, with um, you can just change your practice based on what the grain is. Again, it's it's all also about uh, the interpretation of what lambic is, and our interpretation is that it should not be a standardized beer. Um, it has never been, and it should never be. Uh, it's a natural beer, and nature you cannot control nature, and it already starts with the cereals. Uh, what is then more important, and again, um, a lot of today's industrial uh, uh, grains are being um, uh, 
cultivated for the very uh, specific feature of uh, efficiency in the brewing kettle. How much sugar do you get out of the grain? Because a lot of breweries, they brew for efficiency. Uh, Drie Fontaine, our brewing installation, is as inefficient as can be. <laughs> Just to give you an idea, uh, and I, I think the brewers among us will uh, will really uh, like or adhere to uh, to what I'm going to say. So on a normal brew day, we brew towards between 12 and 13 uh, degrees Play-Doh. That's a bit the uh, density of, uh, of Lambic. But in our... Um, uh, in our spent grains, there's still six degrees Play-Doh left when it goes <laughs> out. So the kettle or the, the kettle of the farmer to, to who we, uh, we get it to, they're very happy because there's still a lot of uh, 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 nutrition uh, material in the, in the spent grains, but it's absolutely not efficient. And uh, to also answer to your question uh, between the agronomical model and, and then uh, the flavor uh, uh, impact, um, well, actually, we are now uh, working and uh, researching on, on more than 50 uh, different cereals spread over uh, wheat and uh, barley. But we actually started sometimes from only five or six uh, uh, grains. Oh, grams. Uh, sorry? Five or six grams. Grams. grams well. 100 grains, which yeah. is a handful. It's a handful, and it, it takes about five to seven years before you have a, a volume that you can actually brew it. Um, so there's a lot of things that we're doing that we will only know the results of sure. in so many years. And that's that's a part of the effort. And meanwhile, uh, we are learning with the whole group. The farmers are learning. We are learning. We're doing small tests. Um, and that's the part of the adventure, I think. But um, we're um, uh, uh, documenting everything so that at least in, in a certain time we can learn from it. We can see what we're going to continue or discontinue. Um, another interesting fact um, is that a lot of these grains were not found in Belgium, but a lot of Brabant grains were actually found in seed banks in the U.S. Interesting. Yep. And uh, so you've been able to go to seed banks in other countries that had seeds for yep. native Belgian barley actually, and wheat. Yeah, indeed. In, in Belgium, there's no real seed bank. Um, they have a couple of varieties, but but in, in cereals, really not much. Um, and so there are a lot of seed banks all over the world. And so searching everywhere for this, this one particular variety, we, we, we found a couple of Belgium land races or Belgium old varieties um, in the seed banks of the US, for example, but also uh, closer by in France, in, in, in Germany, in mm -hmm. the Netherlands. And so the good thing is that these seed banks are kind of open, so everybody can order seed but as they do not have a huge capacity they cannot store of every variety a couple of kilos because it takes too much place sure, sure. they have many many varieties so they send you five grams so right <laughs> that's, right it's very small and, and and by hand together with this we sew it together on on on, on one square meter and right. then the next year it's maybe 10 15 square meters and and we multiply it that way but for the brewery it takes a long time but here at Rifontaine, we're used to taking time. Sure, so. <laughs> sure. Um, and we've I, had this conversation with other folks like Nick uh, uh, Gislason from Hanabi Lager Company. Same kind of thing, was searching for bear, uh, a barley variety that was uh, historically from Scottish Island, and found one grower in you know out on the uh, eastern side of Washington State who was just that old fanatical brewer who or, or old grower who just refused to 
you know, to give up this variety, even though no one else is growing it or some like Matt Riggs from in Illinois, who was looking for, to make his own or grow his own corn for brewing adjunct American lager with corn, um, but needed a low oil variety. And there, there was the agricultural extension who just happened to be developing low oil corn. And they were like, you're the first person that's ever asked to use this. Um, you know, but that, so this process of craft brewers seeking out and finding ingredients, but also, reconnecting with that agricultural history that it, you know, that is, um, you know, local, but also shared and bigger in the face of this larger kind of industrial, uh, agricultural economy is, is really a beautiful one. Is there anything known about whether some of these varieties were used for Lambic brewing before? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, in terms of raw wheat, so the the little redhead from uh, Brabant, the Kleine Russe van Brabant, I don't know if that's the uh, the good translation, uh, was the one that was used by the Lambic brewers, um, and which was actually uh, perfect for the the soil, um, which is uh, oh, I don't know what the uh, English term is. It's clay-like um, uh, leemgrond, um, which which actually goes back also to the whole history of uh, of Brabant, the dukedom of Brabant, which uh, span from the south of Holland to the north of France, and you actually have like a kind of artery throughout uh, that part that is a uh, uh, the clay-like ground, um, the leemgrond uh, that was Loam. made or that was perfect. Loamy soil. Loam. Ah, okay, yeah. Thank you. Um, that was that was perfect for uh, wheat, and that's uh, how uh, a lot of beer styles that are still existing today they refer back to actually the usage of uh, of a certain proportion of wheat. We're talking about the wheat beers, uh, uh, roughly uh, on the uh, on the right of Brussels. You have uh, the lambic beers southwest of Brussels, uh, Pajotland and uh, the Seine of the, uh, the Valley of the Seine. And the saison, uh, which goes to the Ardennes, to the south of uh, of Belgium. So, so you um, can track beer styles based on where they could grow wheat through these kinds of regions. Even more so uh, before, and and that's also the history. Uh, brewing was actually the winter activity of a farm. Um, there are still old documents uh, describing uh, uh, economic uh, models where a uh, farm had to use X percent of a certain proportion of wheat in the mash so that they protected their own economy, uh, which then was also uh, impacting taxes and whatever uh, in a kind of, a, in, in the dukedom. Um, so yeah, it's uh, everything relates to what happened, what was a standard before. So, and going back is, a, I think it's it's not an option. I think it's the only option. Let's talk about that a little bit more, but first, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brewhouse to the integrated hop backs on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brewhouses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented, working with world-renowned brewing industry veterans, and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. Also, are you involved in your local homebrew club? Want to receive even more benefits? Sign up today for Five Star Chemicals Homebrew Club program. It's free and you can have the chance to test out new products before they hit the market, receive exclusive swag, and enjoy discounts on brewing cleaners and sanitizers. Head on over to their website to sign up. You don't want to miss it. Um, where, where we're sitting here in the barrel room, um, wish you could all be here with us, obviously. There's these, besides these really cool black sherry casks, and maybe we should hear more about what's going on in there too. Uh, 
later, but um, there's some really interesting markings and words on some of these barrels. I see Kleiner Rosso over there, maybe von Limburg. Okay, and then there's some other words that I don't know. Are These these are different varieties of, of grain that have gone into the lambic and then into the barrel. And so these are all going to be lambics made from different grains, and then later you can compare and, and what's, what's going on in here. Yeah, exactly. So that's that. what we were in explaining we we test the different wheat varieties and barley varieties first on the field to see are their agronomic traits good enough to grow in our region if they're not then we kind of delete them right. if they do if they do pass the test of five years um then we brew with it and we try to first brew 100 with one variety and not mix them up we could later mix them up if you want but it's very interesting for us to see Okay, the Witte van Vlaanderen, for example, which is a very old land race from this region, um, compared to, uh, you have the, the white land races and the red land races. That's kind of two big categories. And to see how do they, um, how do they involve in, in, in the beer. And so we have actually a very interesting project going on here with, with the barrels behind me, um, where, where there's a, a PhD student um, looking on how do these lambics evolve? So how does the, the, the yeast and the bacteria inside, um, are they different or do they behave different somehow yeah. uh, between these three beers? And so the, the only parameter which changes is the wheat. So we have 60% of barley, of malt. This is the same barley. Um, and then we have 40% of wheat. And so we have one um, red old land race variety, one uh, white land race, and then one just regular modern wheat to compare with. And these results are, are extremely interesting because there's really differences. So and, the, yeah. the barley or the wheat variety could impact uh, the microbial yeah. development of the beer itself. Exactly. Because additionally, uh, it's all, we're also talking about uh, organic cereals. So on the cereal itself or on the grains itself, there's already a life uh, existing and that can really change from one type to the other or one variety or land race to the other. And that's also part of, uh, of the study because uh, that's I, and, and it's not only about the air. There's al already a lot of material existing on the ingredients. Look at natural wine. Eh? It's yeah. the same thing. Eh? There's already yeast and, and living uh, material on the grape itself, on the, on the grape skin. Sure, That sure. is used in the whole fermentation. This is fascinating to me, you know, to think about. Uh, and obviously, these projects are still in barrels right now. You don't have finished things to taste. But I imagine there's been some work done, you know, how... You know, from what you all have seen so far, and we don't have the all of the uh, you know rundowns of reports in front of us to to discuss it in a, in all the particulars. But are there some broader ways that you have seen that the different wheat varieties impact the microbial development um, within those barrels? Um, even there, uh, everything depends on the size of the barrels, the shape of the barrels, and. Again, we don't go for one type of barrel. We have uh, uh, barrels starting from 400 liters, even 250, a few ones, uh, up to the biggest footer that we have is uh, 8,000 uh, liters and everything in between. So there will always be a very uh, big um, uh, unknown factor as well. Uh, but again, it's the beauty of... Uh, of what lambic is, huh? um, we don't interfere. We don't want to interfere. We don't add stuff. We don't get stuff out of it. Um, and that's why the blending is the actual art. It's to uh, taste, to uh, uh, 
to 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 taste all the lambics and to do something with it and try to find a balance that is proper to the characteristics that you want to get into it. And yeah, with Tri Fontaine, passing from one generation to the other, you cannot learn it from a book. You have to uh, adhere uh, the process, but also the nose for uh, for lambics and the combination of different types of lambics. What we hope for, uh, of course, and, and that's the question that we, we often get, is do you think that the different wheat and barley varieties will have a different taste? Fairly, we, honestly, we cannot answer to that uh, yet. Um, but if we can have at least the same taste with local cereals, with organically grown cereals, with people that we can support directly, um, that can learn from us as well, that we have a um, sustainable model, then I, I think we already uh, managed to uh, to reach our, our ambition, to have re- reached our ambition, absolutely. Obviously, this isn't a process that anyone would want to rush, but when do you think it would be uh, possible for somebody to finally have a bottle in their hands of Thierry Fontaine and Goose that were made with these land race grain varieties? So um, from about two years ago, I think uh, on average, um, and I speak, yeah, Weighted average in a blend of Cuvier and Gaston, there will already be 25 to, let's say, 40% of locally grown uh, uh, cereals. Uh, not necessarily organic, because officially uh, we are an organic brewery since uh, February of uh, last year, so n- more or less a year now. Um, the first full Payotland grown goose will be for next year to let's say 2023, and then fully organic, like officially certified organic, because we have started with the uh, ambition of going full organic, but officially organic, that will be for 24, 25, uh, the earliest, something like that. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's a question here, and, I, and you bring it up when we were talking about kind of you know barrel and size and scale. And you mentioned earlier this major project to move from the original brewery into this new location, especially as a Lambic brewery moving and changing location and dealing with that kind of process is a major ordeal and has the ability to change flavor and impact. Um, Talk to me about some of the, that process of moving and how you all prepared this brewery to make beer that, you know, achieved the same flavor that you all wanted to from the original brewery. Uh, well, uh, actually, and, and that's where uh, COVID also changed uh, the plans a bit. Um, uh, currently, we're still brewing at the uh, the brewery in uh, the village center of Basel. Mm. Um, during COVID, so 2020 hit lockdown, um, we were about to start uh, the practical side of the, the addition uh, of a new building to this building. Uh, but we, yeah. Obviously, we stopped the whole process, sure, sure. <laughs> um, and we started to rethink the whole uh, the whole future a bit. Um, having hit the ceiling at the eight thousand hectoliters in the barrel room, um, having uh, a full warm room with no sales at that moment, we we had to rebalance everything. Um, at the same time, our uh, American importer uh, went into bankruptcy, so that was an additional up on top of uh, of COVID. That was an additional uh, impact, but also, and and that's a bit the uh, the emotional side to things. Um, end of 2018, um, Armand was diagnosed with uh, with cancer. Mm. 
uh, that he, uh, on the moment that he actually started to enjoy retirement, uh, he got uh, a very bad news. He coped with it well, uh, fairly well, uh, up to the summer of 2019, where um, the impact of the uh, uh, the medication was was uh, so big that he uh, his body just said like stop, um, and he was hospitalized because of uh, uh, sheer uh, um, how you call it um, fatigue. Um, um, he's doing well now, but uh, obviously it has had an impact on uh, the way or adjusting his life to uh, his new situation. Um, if he if he could, he would be here any day or every day. Um, but that also made us reflect on uh, where do we want to go. Um, he was the the biggest sponsor of the future project, uh, also in times of uh, doubt, uh, especially trying to balance everything financially. He said that we had to to go to to continue with it, um, but yeah, last summer 2021, we put everything together again. We start to puzzle again. So, and for the for the future of Driefontaine, we decided to actually keep this level of production, but to continue with uh, the building of the logistical uh, building or construction of the logistical building, a new Lambicodrome and the brew house, uh, but only continue with installing new brewery when it's financially possible. Um, that way we can, so uh, again, uh, keeping this volume in the barrel room, we are creating more options in terms of surface uh, to put away even uh, more special barrels, like the sherry barrels, for example, or install a whole Solera system, which is which takes even more time than the... Uh, in the two years and a half right. uh, to, to get a certain result. So we, we rebalanced everything also with the banks and, and financing. And we think that if we can go back to the 2019 uh, volumes of sales, which was about 3,200 hectoliters, we should be uh, be able to to pay actually the lease of the, of the building and continue with the current team. That's also very important. That's the human aspect. Um, we have learned that the balance in a team, especially in Lambic Brewing, we have a quite a young team. There's a lot of um, freedom. There's a lot of creativity. But that's also a side that we want to, to uh, or a value that we want to secure, uh, that everybody can uh, actually do what he or she likes to do, uh, that we can still be creative. Um, um, also, and then coming to the sherry barrels, like... Um, do some trips to go to the bodegas themselves without having to work with the middleman, but really invest that uh, time into uh, into looking for quality, into going to natural winemakers to uh, pick the the grapes ourselves. That's those are actually the values that we want to continue with, rather than doing a next step in volume. And that's actually the biggest change uh, since the very first plans that we drafted in two thousand eighteen. There's an interesting dynamic here where you are at the same time paying respect to this tradition, but also trying to use all the tools at your disposal to do it better and to understand more, you know, certain things like cleaning your barrels, you know, using better technology to steam clean barrels, using, you know, that kind of microbial, you know, paneling to discover what's going on at any phase of that fermentation 
so that you can just know, you know, how things are, are, are steering in these directions. Talk to me a little bit, of, you know, about that approach that, uh, you know, moving, you know, beyond just the, we think this is kind of that, you know, happening here and to, you know, to taking it more. And this is something I think that's happened over the last 20 years with, especially within Lambic, you know, to, you know, whether it's processes for adding fruit or trying to, you know, decrease oxygen in the, the beer itself so that, uh, you know, you don't end up with more, you know, acetic production or all of those pieces, you know, using this kind of technological approach to make something that tastes the, you know, that, that realizes that flavor vision of Lambic. Um, just just to point out, we don't use a lot of technology to uh, to actually come to certain results. Um, what we do what we do use in in cleaning the barrels is uh, actually indeed uh, high pressurized steam, mm. because history has shown that that is really a very effective uh, way right. to clean barrels. Um, rather, but making sure that it is truly spontaneous fermentation rather than a barrel-driven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's important to you. Yeah, then, and, and that's also learnings from the past uh, when everything was done by hand or with the chains. Uh, with the chains, um, there were always risks to to uh, uh, miss a spot, but it was that spot that could infect the whole barrel and make it vinegar rather than lambic. And still today, you cannot rule out everything. Um, even a few months ago, we threw away or we we, we dumped uh, four beautiful barrels of four-year-old lambic. That beautiful barrels, but the lambic turned into uh, into vinegar, and and then you have to make the choices. Uh, and those choices today are. We can cope with it financially. Um, we don't suffer from it anymore. And uh, those are the small anecdotes from Armand. He said, like, back in the days when I did, didn't have the financial means and I had some ascetic um, uh, sting in my uh, lambics, sometimes I just blended them. They gave the most beautiful vintage uh, gerses, but I had no financial uh, options just to, to dump it, um, which we obviously do have today. Rather, also in, in terms of techniques, um, just to give an example, there's one thing that we did change uh, for the better uh, that was based on uh, on uh, academic research uh, done by uh, Jonas, who is uh, also meanwhile working here, um, and which was also uh, something that we uh, discussed about internally. It was uh, the... Um, um, how do you call it? The uh, pre-acidification on the cool ship. So uh, acidifying the wort to uh, uh, decrease the risk of enterobacteries uh, uh, right. already inoculating at the beginning of, uh, the, uh, of the fermentation process. It's something that historically has always been done. Uh, back in the days, they actually poured a bucket of uh, very sour lambic onto <laughs> the cool ship to get huh. the, the actual pH down. Right. Um, Jonas, uh, a few years ago in his PhD, he actually showed that um, the uh, pre-acidification of, uh, of wort has no influence or has very little influence on the working of the uh, enterobacteria at the beginning of uh, your fermentation. During these studies, we had a lot of talks with him, um, and he said, like, I'm, I'm really, I'm really... Um, I'm convinced that it will not impact the lambic. Um, and then we just discussed, okay, are we going to stop it or not? Because that's the only thing, it's the only addition that we cannot say it's fully natural. 
and we decided to stop from one day to the next. And it has had no impact on... Uh, and so you no longer pre-acidify before the cool I, shit? I should, I think, four years now. Wow. We stopped four years ago, 2022, 2018, even 2017, I think, yeah. Almost five years ago. We stopped pre-acidifying. Um, and that was a point that Armand was not convinced of. Um, but in the end, he said, like, look, guys, I really trust you. Um, and what Lucas also explained about the uh, uh, the academic research that we do with the uh, old weed varieties, um, the only um, thing that we want to get out of it is to understand, not to steer the process, but to understand, to better understand. Um, truth be told, yeah, it's true. We will mostly, we will also use it. And today it's only limited to a few wheat varieties, but we will use the learnings from it to see what type of uh, wheat variety would be better uh, developing in the beer than maybe another. And that's why we chose a, a white variety and a red variety to see if there's like a really uh, big differences. For the rest, you will not find a lab in uh, at Rifontaine. <laughs> the only machine, sure, sure. the only machine that we have, is actually an alcohol analyzer to put the alcohol percentage uh, on our labels. We don't have a microscope. We don't. Uh, the only thing we we look at in a blend is the, pl the number of Play-Dohs to see that we actually still have enough residual sugars for the continued uh, fermentation in the bottle. Um, and and that's about it. Uh, we only. I can open all <laughs> doors at the brewery uh, in the barrel room. Yeah. We don't have a microscope or nothing. We don't measure um, it's the nose and the, the taste. And to be honest, sometimes you're also wrong. Uh, bottles not uh, re-fermenting or fermenting uh, or uh, flavor that is not not uh, up to what we expect or what we see as, as a Drifontaine character. And then we put them, we put them away to see how they evolve in the bottle, and that's that's a choice. Sure, sure. Let's get back to the question that Joe had. Um, some of the more you all are at the same time pushing towards different ways of finishing, um, finding other ways of adding interesting and creative flavor to the beers that you make. Um, you know, not to you know depart from tradition, but to embrace that in many ways. Um, you know, you've always received barrels from a wide number of places. You have some here from Pilsner or Kell, and then of course we've got sherry barrels on the other side. It's a pretty fantastic spot to be sitting between these right now. Um, you know, but talk to me about some of the, the more creative expressions that you all have engaged in and, and how you all have built some ideas around, uh, you know, adding to that flavor lexicon that uh you know within lambic um, um it's also an interesting an interesting topic to talk to and uh, a lot of uh, anecdotes and stories that we can uh, uh, put up against um when we were when we just moved to this building and one of the very first things um, that we did is actually start to structurally work together with barrel makers with coopers at that time, it was really difficult as a lambic brewery, uh, being dependent on wood, eh, because the fermentation, the maturation only happens in, in wood at Rifontaine, um, together with the traditional uh, lambic, other traditional lambic breweries as well, of course, um, was to get barrels. So we, we worked with middlemen, uh, but it was harder and harder to get like high quality barrels. 
Um, that is where uh, we sent Armand, being the Pater Familias, to some of the uh, Italian family cooperages to talk to the Pater Familias of those <laughs> cooperages with an Italian uh, uh, translator. And um, it was a, a full week. Uh, we continued to work here. But those guys understood what we were doing. And the months after, we got one phone call after the other uh, asking us what we actually needed. So we turned around a, a quite a, a bad situation into something positive. Um, that was one big step in, in trying to structure what we were doing and to, pro, to be a bit more proactive. Um, and then you start to grow your team. You get a lot of young people. Uh, one of the ideas was to start to try with other fruits. Um, according to the same principles of natural maceration, we don't punch down the fruit, we don't puree it, we don't uh, make juice out of it or nothing. It's full fruit uh, that we put on the lambic. But of course, you can do more macerations than cake and framboise. Armand, and that's the inspiring teacher that he is, he will always say what he thinks. But in the end, he only hopes that he would have inspired people but he lets you decide to do something with the inspiration or not. So he gave his, his thoughts. He said, like, been there, done that. I have tried a lot of things. I will not stop you to try, but I just, I'm just telling you what my experience is. Our reply at that point was, like, Armand, let us try as well. If we hit a wall, we hit the wall, but at least we have learned something. He said, like, he said, like, okay, do it. Of course, we try in very small barrels, 500 liter barrels, to with, we, we, we tried with uh, peaches for the first time, so with a, a wide range of fruits. It was also the first time that we did something on such a small uh, scale. Um, and that's the reason why we called the series The Twist of Fate, Speling van het Lot. And the very first series with a numerous variety of different fruits was called Crazy Kids. And that was his uh, response <laughs> to what we were doing. He said, like, you're all yeah. crazy kids. <laughs> uh, but we, and in, in our head, it, it was perfect because we were his kids. He has always seen the team as his children. And the very first example is a beautiful one. We ordered with Garbalotto. Um, a thousand liter barrel that was toasted to put uh, sour cherries on. We actually forgot about it because it was such a small project um, and it macerated for nine months. And Armand was actually ups, uh, upset because the, a new barrel that was toasted was about threefold or triple the price of any other type of barrel per liter. And he was upset because we were still counting the dimes for every investment that we made. Um, the moment that we tasted from the barrel, the fruit lambic that came off, he turned away because he actually shed a tear. And he says, like, guys, if this is the result, you just continue whatever I'm saying. And this, this, <laughs> yeah. this is Armand. And so um, it has evolved. We are still doing a lot of different stuff. But the 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 values that we were that we are uh, doing it with are all inspired by Armand. So 
the very first wide variety of fruit macerations was actually with uh, fruit that we got from our typical supplier of, of uh, also the, the bulk uh, sour cherries. But it has evolved now to one-on-one -on -one sourcing with uh, organic fruit farmers uh, on every type of fruit. It has evolved to setting up a, a network of um, uh, private owners of Scarabixa sour cherries of families. We now have 200 families uh, in the whole of Belgium that has uh, sour Scarabixa uh, cherry trees. We have also multiplied sour Scarabixa cherry, uh, cherry trees actually uh, from the uh, root shoot rather than having it uh, grafted on another, uh, uh, on another tree. And those are all... Um, those are, uh, again, Trifontaine is driven by values of its ancestors, of its predecessors. And for us, for our generation, it is Armand. Um, and yeah, the last type of uh, approach is then the barrels. So um, the Sherry Barrel Program, um, uh, also known as the Sandy Frontera. It's an idea of Armand together with them. Uh, Andy de Brouwer, uh, which is a, a chef of a nice restaurant in the, uh, uh, close to uh, close to brewery in Halle, Les Eleveurs. Um, those barrels came also in through a, through a third party, uh, but that uh, has also evolved to going really to the bodegas, to the families behind, talking to them, selecting the barrels uh, and having them shipped over. So um, they are uh, emptied uh, at the bodega, uh, and two days later, they're here, and we put lambic on it, and and, and that's also part of, of what we want to do is also tell the story about sherry. The first time we uh, we launched the Zeni Frontera, or no, it was the third time. We actually also sold a few bottles of sherry next to it, uh, and also tell the story. And what we have seen is that people, um, and especially I think in the mind of a craft beer consumer they don't want to, um, or even a craft beer uh, consumer, but also a lambic aficionado. It's not only about a beer, it's about the values behind. And what we have seen is that um, a subset of the people who bought Zeni Frontera and the Sherry uh, with it, they actually looked into the culture of uh, real traditional Sherry. And it's also a culture... I often say that the culture of sherry is now at the point that Lambic was mid-90s. Um, there's no local interest anymore. There's a, only a few big players taking or eating up all the small ones. But those that are left that continue with the same stubbornness and steadfast vision for the future, if you can go there and you can drink it straight from the barrel, it's one of the most beautiful experiences in a lifetime. And that's what we, I, again, are future for the uh, or our vision for the future is that we can also share that with a whole team of people passionate people and maybe one day also maybe we want to communicate about it and really s let people see what is behind a certain craft in a very open way actually i love that you're connecting in that way with other like-minded beverage makers you know across different disciplines and, and, and genres of beverage, but who embrace a similar kind of philosophy for what they do. That makes a lot of sense. Well, we're getting on in time now as we kind of wrap up. What does 
the big picture look like? I mean, I know we've defined a few things. You want to maintain the production where you are, and you are simply trying to, um, you know, develop some of these creative ideas. But what is what's the is the what's the near term goal, and what is the the biggest long term goal? The near term is to continue what we like to do, um, and hopefully that the market will get back to 2019 level pre uh <laughs> sure, pre covid sure. <laughs> right right uh nobody has the answer i think um but the very long run is that we uh um that yeah we see the the definite return to uh to a local uh, economy uh from from grain to 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 goose or to bottle and that we're not the only one that is doing that because what we're doing and then coming back a bit to the whole uh, cereal collective uh we're currently uh one of the only ones to do it uh, end to end um and we didn't even talk about the hops because that's another uh, local project <laughs> um but one of the traits as well with the farmers if i can uh, take a few steps sure, back sure. is that we're actually alleviating a part of their risk as well so um we and and that's the uniqueness of the model um we are paying uh, on the moment that they are actually sowing uh, the seeds we already pay for the number or the surface that they uh, are sowing into um if there's no crop at least they have something uh, of financial means uh, to survive uh, um the summer uh and then uh, after the harvest we pay per ton or per uh, unit um of uh, of cereals uh, that's quite unique and we hope that this model gets more uh, exposure to other brewers um because i do think that if you can scale it and that will not be for us but there are some farmers that could scale if you can scale it consistently that even for bigger craft brewers um that they can actually uh make a calculation that actually fits uh, the value of it and that they can calculate it into the beer we see that in some more more commonly in hops um with brewers say sponsoring an acre um same kind of thing of an experimental hop and saying hey, we're going to cover this and it may not work out and agronomically we might get wiped out but we're going to take the risk from the farmer in order to pursue this um but that's a beautiful piece and it's something that is possible within this world of craft because there's an economy a price point and everything else that allows the brewers through the consumers that are willing to pay for that when people often ask like why is this so much more expensive than some other beer cuz beer should just be cheap. You know, this is the answer. The answer is that in order to have something like this that protects everyone through that entire chain of that production from agriculture through brewing you know, into distribution and getting there, you know, it just this is part of it. And so I think but from a consumer perspective, it's something that I'm willing to do as a consumer to pay a little bit more knowing that everyone along that process you know is paid in a sustainable way that can live the lives that they want to and and express that and uh, you know and be made whole through it. It also tastes pretty good. It does taste pretty good. It's too. all right. You can drink it. Yeah. Well, Werner and Lucas, I appreciate you all talking with us on this episode for of the podcast. For nearly 30 years, G&D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. BSG offers the largest variety of quality ingredients to create outstanding beers. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Get detailed insight into your fermentations with Brew Monitor risk-free. 
Put SS Brewtax advances to work in your brew house and sign up today for Five Star Chemicals Homebrew Club program. Of course, if you enjoy the podcast, we'd love your support. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button. We'd love to keep doing this and keep bringing great episodes like this to you. And of course, we also continue to bring you this great content through the magazine, video classes, and everything else. So, Werner, if people want to learn more about your brewery, where do they find you all? Uh, our website is still in uh, full construction, <laughs> <laughs> but we do have a separate website for uh, the Serial Collective project. You can find it on granen.driefontaine.be. It's uh, spelled G-R-A-N-E-N.driefontaine.be. Well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to talk to you about this. Again, like I said at the top, we don't we didn't come in expecting to um, focus so much with a lambic brewery about grain, um, but it's been interesting and inspiring to hear just how closely you all are tying those things. Thanks again for joining me. Cheers. Thank you, guys. Thank Cheers. you very Thanks. much. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.